This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is November 24th, 2022. I'm Strata Lundebaum. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, the new premier, David Eby, he's off and running. You can take really big steps when you're that tall. You know, this has been a great time to be in the podium business, because apparently every podium in BC needs to be replaced with a stretch version. That and the stools for the shorter ministers uh, to come and also give their press conferences. Support podiums and stools for us at patreon.com slash politicoast. Let's jump into it. There's a lot happening provincially, finally, now that we have a new premier in who's eager to do a lot in his first 100 days. On the public safety front, that was his big first announcement on, I think it was Sunday. He has a swath of new things he wants to do to keep people and communities safe. So this announcement included a wide range of elements. He wants to uh, create new repeat violent offender coordinated response teams, which will involve police, dedicated prosecutors, and probation officers. There will be more mental health crisis response teams. These, I believe, are like peer-assisted care teams that are something that was called for in the Vancouver election by a number of parties. There'll be an expanded addictions care center, St. Paul's, that will use new techniques to help get people uh, clean. There will be 10 new indigenous justice centers across the province to help make sure there's culturally sensitive pathways for anyone who's interfacing with the justice center, with justice system. Uh, Controversially, the most controversial one is the unexplained wealth orders that will be coming in a new bill in the spring. And that there has been a clear and understandable approach to bail for repeat violent offenders direction issued by the Attorney General to prosecutors as of November 22nd. Where do you want to start on this, Scott? <laughs> um, so a lot of this stuff comes uh, as a follow up to the uh, prolific offenders report. We didn't talk about that because it was released uh, during our hiatus period. Uh, but some of the stuff like the uh new coordinated response teams uh expanded uh mental health crisis response teams and uh new uh approaches to bail were all included in that report so this can be seen as basically kind of following through on the expert recommendations coming out of that um as well as the like unexplained wealth orders were uh part of the calling commissions uh, report. So a lot of this is just kind of like following up on kind of things the government got rolling with reports a while back. Nevertheless, it is noteworthy that A, this was a weekend announcement and governments don't typically do that. And that it was pretty much the f- one of the first things. Like this was what, day three of uh, his time as premier being sworn in last Friday and dropping the announcement uh on Sunday. I guess a Sunday announcement's better than a Friday afternoon announcement. So I don't judge the timing too much. Yeah, and listen, 
I don't know, the, the conventional wisdom was that Friday afternoons was, you know, your take out the trash time, your things you announce so nobody really pays attention. Um, in the days of social media, I'm less convinced that that is something that holds true anymore because, you know, now people are sitting around their homes on the weekends scrolling Twitter or whatever. And these things keep going more on the weekends than I think they used to in the uh, days of the internet or days of the newspapers and TV. Yeah. What I found interesting in the substance of the report is, I mean, none of it was too surprising. Um, there was some interesting pushback there. Von Palmer had a piece talking about how prosecutors for quite a while have been calling for not these kind of changes. They've been saying they have the tools and that there actually aren't catch and release programs. That was kind of the allegations. Uh, EB seems to have taken the uh, prolific offender report and which actually says stop using that term in favor of repeat violent offenders uh more seriously i i really don't think the terms the the problem here and you change it up and you know 10 years from now there's the next report is just going to say the exact same thing with whatever the new language is like fundamentally people have a problem with the underlying behavior not the label and swapping around the label isn't going to help anything too much the the bigger point I was trying to get to is the report did a call for some additional measures to be taken, and this went against what the prosecution service had taken as a position. The wealth orders one also, like, it's not surprising given the Cullen Commission called for it, but already there's been a couple pieces coming out flagging that it could lead to charter concerns. Uh, the BC Civil Liberties has talked about this in the past and among other organizations, and the concern that if you're taking people's stuff without them having been charged with a crime, let alone convicted, <laughs> let alone like, convicted, that's a problem. Yeah. So, yeah, and we're talking, yeah. And there was already concerns a few years back that the uh, asset forfeiture laws in BC were too loose. And this seems to be heading in the other way. And like, we're ta not talking like oh, small little things here either. We're talking vehicles, houses, that sort of thing. And, when you start talking about seizing that stuff, we're talking about things that could be as disruptive to one's life as a short jail term would be. And like, it seems reasonable that the government would have to establish uh, liability for bad acts on the same le standards, basically, as a jail term would be. The bail changes have also been challenged by some experts uh the Globe and Mail, Andrea Wu and Justine Hunter have a piece talking with some academics who suggest that tying prosecution's hands a little bit more like that and pushing for harder jail sentences when otherwise judges might be inclined to not consider them based on the facts or the context of the case could end up you know, leading us to more over-incarceration concerns and that could be challenged in a number of ways in courts. So, I mean, well, like, it's always going to be up to the courts, right? So like, this is just what one of the parties in these circumstances would be recommending the prosecution service. And we have a lead adversarial legal system where you have, you know, one party representing one side and the other doing the other. It's not unreasonable that the prosecution service be more focused on kind of the public safety, the keeping uh people for, who have the potential to 
reoffend off of the streets in the pretrial period and have the other side focus on putting forward the other options that kind of starts breaking down a little bit when the prosecution service is kind of preemptively avoiding that discussion at the you know in front of the judge and this it there are kind of legitimate concerns i think have prompted the government to take this approach there's a story a few weeks back about uh an individual who had been arrested within something like two hours of his previous arrest. Uh, and like at that point, there's kind of a clear sign that something's not working <clears throat> with this. Um, and that was after he was already weighed in trial for, I think, a violent offense that had been committed a few weeks back. Um, and like in that case, like clearly something has been broken. And if the prosecution service wasn't pushing for uh bail. I think it's kind of avoiding the issues of or the, the public safety concerns. That's right for the, the government to take a second look at that and maybe tweak kind of the policy grounds in which the, the prosecutions are service prepares their uh uh briefs related to whether or not bail goes I think ahead. the bigger challenge sitting around all of this is just like we have court systems that are so tied up that if you're waiting for trial like there is a miscarriage of justice when people are, and the court and Supreme Court has recognized this. If you have to wait too long to have your day in court, it it breaks your rights under some of the legal rights you have under the charter. In some, in certain cases, not in every crime, of course, but like we need nothing in here really funds additional judicial capacity except for the indigenous justice centers so there's a lot more that could there, be done well, there, on that front i think it does also they are also hiring additional uh, prosecutors, prosecutors aren't the problem judges are <laughs> you can, like it, yeah. it's a bit of everything like yeah you also need to have like prosecution the prosecutors have the time to move through their work quickly on this stuff but yeah more, more resources going into uh more judges to, to speed things up would also be what useful as well. I think is really interesting in all of this is the break it signals, which isn't a new break, I don't think, and but between like David Eby as past executive director of the BC Civil Liberties Association and past staff member with Pivot Legal and David Eby as premier, the positions he's taking now are ones that are raising the ire of those organizations. It's, and I don't, know how much he's doing it intentionally to create that I'm making a clear break. Like his other big announcement this week that came a little bit later was uh, $230 million over three years for specialized and rural police services to fill to hire more RCMP officers, uh, mostly in communities of people under 5,000, but also some major crimes uh, and other specialized units. And that drew a lot of uh, ire on Twitter. I posted about it and that tweet went hot pretty quickly because uh, people look at this and they go oh you're throwing money at cops why can't we throw money at the causes of crime rather than just which the ndp has put a lot of money into various social programs over the last uh five years or so so like it's not like they haven't also been funding other but there's programs. been clear calls that you know we have a lot of harm reduction services for addiction and drug use in metro vancouver and in uh, metro urban communities, but those aren't as avail readily available outside 
you know, a handful of urban communities. And if that's what you're trying to like, there is a challenge of staffing RCMP offices across the province. There are, are communities where they're supposed to have three cops and they have one. So the basic level isn't being done. I think it's noteworthy that a lot of this is going to the under 500,000, which I believe is the police act cutoff for when uh, communities have to start taking on some of their own police funding rather than it being entirely provincially funded. So like this is areas where the province is the sole provider of police service funding. And this would cover a lot of indigenous communities, it's worth noting, especially in rural and remote areas. Yeah, but... uh, yeah, and hiring uh, for more specialized units like major crime, sexual exploitation of children, and highway patrol. I don't think any like, – it would be good to have a lot more investigative resources go into words dealing with major crimes as and sexual exploitation of children, stopping all that. So, like, these are probably good investments regardless of what the uh, – kind of the background rates are or the – where things are with uh, like province-wide police funding. But between it all, you get a picture of a David E.B., you know, who's trying to come off in his very, his like his first announcements is a tough-on-crime type premier. Now, there is an emphasis within that first announcement on some more compassionate approaches, specifically around the mental health crisis response teams on the Indigenous Justice Centers, but you know, broadly, this is a, I'm going to push up to the envelope of where I think we can get away with in terms of charter rights versus someone who may have been more critical in past roles. Yeah, I think this is savvy politics by the uh, the new premier. I, I think this goes to show that the BCNDP governs a little more like the uh, the federal liberals and the federal new democrats and that is probably to their political benefit in that they're kind of adjusting course uh as the public's concerns shift and focus on addressing kind of where the the public has indicated there are concerns and yeah maybe part of this is reading the tea leaves after the most recent round of municipal elections but kind of between all of that, like, I think this is going to be the sort of thing that uh, is generally well-received by the public and as well is going to make it significantly more difficult for the opposition parties to try and uh, wedge out the government I on these issues. don't necessarily disagree on the broader public. I think this does undermine the NDP a little bit in their long-term challenge, you know, prospects number one it dampens a chunk of the base a significant chunk of the base that they will need to rely on for fundraising for uh volunteer hours when it comes to door knocking and building the party towards the next election uh but more substantively or also substantively public safety is not a natural issue for the ndp and they can put policies on it they can put strong policies on it even or whatever you want to say uh but the tough and crime default is always going to be towards conservative parties is towards the bc liberals bc united liberals let's call them until they're officially changed so when it comes to the election if you go well crime crime is still my issue i know the ndp have done something but at their heart of hearts they're still soft woke whatever 
uh, Pierre Polyev said, and we'll get back to that. I'm going to go with my tough conservative choice, my, you know, united liberal, tough on crime. And so, like, the thing EB needs to get out of this is a cultural change, is he needs to either solve the issues if they're real or change the debate. Uh, he's decided to lean into the issues, so he's going to try to solve the perception of the issues. And I guess we'll have to see how that goes. I know that the which is right wing is definitely going to keep trying to fight on this because, like I said, they're stronger on it or perceived to be stronger. Well, I think the thing about perception is pretty spot on because tough on crime politics works the best uh, uh, for the right when it looks like the left in government does not care about the issue, is ignoring the issue, and uh, seems unconcerned uh with whether or not people feel safe in their communities and yeah you, you're not going to solve crime like that's been something that society has been trying to tackle as long as there's been society and it's never quite hit everything nevertheless if people think the government is at least taking the issue seriously and is putting resources into doing with the chances that the then come election time it becomes a case where the opposition is able to successfully paint uh, the current government as out of touch and uncaring on it goes away and isn't going to be a successful strategy. So in that case, I think this these sets of announcements, this early on in the Premier's tenure, kind of sets things up very well to not make it so the ballot question is on crime. Because yeah, if the ballot question's on crime in the next election, the NDP are probably going to lose. But I think this goes a long way to making it so the ballot question isn't going to be that. Well, the ballot question might be housing, which has been an unaffordable challenge for a number of years and continues to be really bad. Uh, and so now we have two new bills, Scott, that are going to solve a, a couple little things. Well, we have two new bills that are going to... They don't hurt. Be modest improvements on it. So, uh, so this was the following day's announcement, Monday, uh, where, the, where David Eby announced the long-anticipated and long-teased housing plan. Uh, during the leadership race, he put out like a four-page backgrounder, on, and I think it was his only policy announcement in the entire leadership race um, about housing. This took some of that and turned it into legislation. Uh, so the two main points here, uh, there's the Housing Supply Act, uh, which is Bill 42. That basically allows the government, or the provincial government, to take the housing needs report, which a couple of years back, I think it was 2018, uh, was a new legislative requirement for cities to basically compile uh, periodic housing needs reports saying, hey, this is how much housing our municipality needs. And in up until now, that was basically for information purposes. Now these housing needs are going to be targets that the cities are going to have to meet. Uh, and the province now will have the ability to a, require periodic status updates uh, reports from cities, 
And also, the minister will now have the ability to basically step in and either amend bylaws or uh, issue permits uh, for housing within cities. The exact mechanism that uh, this would take is unclear. Like, it's not clear if, say, oh, there's a uh, there's a rental housing project that the city council voted down at rezoning. It is not clear at all if the developer gets like a right to appeal this to the province or something, or if this is going to be like more general. Oh, the, you know, the city submitted their progress report and it says they're you know. 40% under target, so we're going to send them a sternly worded letter threatening to intervene a little more on this later. Yeah, this kicks the can down the road quite a ways. It does like put cities on notice in a way, but it doesn't it doesn't change anything immediately. It kind of says, all right, cities, you need to do better faster, uh, or something will happen. Like the thing that comes to my mind is like, what do you do with a city where they haven't actually said no to much, but it's just like known to be a city you don't build in. And so no one's applying and like they don't meet their targets, but it's not clear like the province could just say yes to a couple things and make it happen. Does the province just come in and build it then? Yeah. And you also have stuff where like a lot of the, yeah, or you also have situations where like a lot of um, projects that say get submitted to the Vancouver Planning Department, they're fairly ambitious or they're somewhat ambitious projects. No, nobody's super ambitious in Vancouver because uh, that's not the culture here with that. But like they'll submit like a letter of inquiry before the formal application goes in saying, hey, we want to build this building, this size. And the planning department kind of gives them a, yeah, we're probably not going to approve that. So why don't you send us something smaller with like more setbacks and shorter heights and everything. And between that and the various revisions as it's going through the like spot rezoning process and everything by the time it actually like gets the council it's 30 percent smaller than it originally envisioned and it's like not clear how this would basically address the, the province did announce with this bill that they're this. going to keep doing and ramping up some of their existing programs to support local approvals and clean up permitting processes and doing a lot of that unsexy but necessary support and that will help undoubtedly yeah uh so so i, I watched the announcement and uh like what uh the thing that struck me with it, both david eb and later the person who was given the uh technical briefing on this was that they both like emphasize this is going to be a cooperative process with municipalities and that just i think is either being kind of polite for political reasons or maybe a little naive on how municipalities tend to act. Like these, this is not the first kind of provincial, like higher order government that has stepped in and changed some of the rules around what cities can can and can't do. Uh, California has put in a bunch of new stuff and this seems to be somewhat modeled on their approach. New Zealand's made some, well they don't have provinces there so like just their national government came in and made some changes um to what and like usually there has been quite a bit of pushback and cities trying to find a way to skirt the rules and come up with some other thing that makes building new housing not happen and 
yeah, I'm hoping that this is just them being polite for the sake of being polite rather than um than a level of naivete about just how cynical municipal governments can be on this. I think it's politics. You don't want to start your first few days as premier just like immediately starting all of the fights with all of the cities at once. Like he's going to have to fight some cities and he and David Eby has proved he's happy to do that in the case of Penticton and a couple others. But to just come in and say, all right, my housing announcement is, fuck you, cities. Uh, not going to do well with new mayors who feel they have mandates to do things their way. Like, David Eby d didn't win an election as premier. Ken Sim did as mayor. So, finding ways to work together. Well, I mean, the, the ABC housing platform was so vague, I don't think he has a mandate on in any direction, but... Um. <laughs> no. But yes. they did win the election much more cleanly than even like Kennedy Stewart did. So I can see the reason they'd want to be friendly. I think what's more interesting than this Housing Supply Act is the changes they want to make to the Shire Property Act. None of these are too surprising, but they're all long overdue. So in the advance of this announcement, David Eby had been teasing that he's going to bring rental properties immediately onto the market with some bill. And I'm like, the only way you can do that is to force stratas and condos to allow rentals. And that's what they're doing. All rental restriction bylaws in the province are going to be a thing of the past very soon. Uh, as well, age restriction bylaws, any stratas that prohibit 19 and under or 25 and under will also be banned. You will still be allowed to have seniors complexes that is 55 plus for those young seniors, uh, those stratas will be allowed. Uh, but yeah, they say this could make up to almost 3,000 empty condos being brought onto the rental market based on the speculation of vacancy tax data that are currently governed by stratas with rental restrictions. So it's good. Like, yeah, we, yeah we, we need that um, to be brought on. I think those numbers come from basically the exemptions to the, uh, the speculation mm -hmm. tats filing uh for that that's kind of roughly what they think is going to be able to be brought on the market uh it also means like this is probably like pretty much the last thing you can do on kind of push existing rental stock and push it kind of do the demand side tweaks to the thousand stuff like after this you've pretty much gotten as much as you can onto the market and you kind of now have to actually like very seriously tackle the uh supply half of the equation but still good um on that so yeah like the yeah the speculation and vacancy tax data did come out earlier this week and it showed that there's about 3500 units that are paying that tax so i don't know you could probably bump it up higher and really force those people to rent out or to sell their condos and uh houses and things like that but yeah, you're it's not we're not quite at pulling blood from a stone, but definitely diminishing returns on the do stuff with the existing stock. Yeah. So, yeah. The these changes did draw some criticism. People, there's a number of strata owners I've seen on Twitter who are worried about what this will do to insurance rates, which is an ongoing problem in the condo market is strata insurance. Uh, there's concerns about, you know, what about 
bad renters, well, they are giving Stratus the ability to go directly to the residential tenancy board to evict problem tenants and to recoup damages. So if the landlord That's isn't willing to do it, the Strata will. That, that seems reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the RTB is, a, I won't say how good it is, but it's at least a, a process by which both sides can get uh, their grievances out. Uh, Stratas will still be allowed to restrict short-term rentals, so they won't all go Airbnb. Like This is pretty well thought out, I think, in terms of the changes. I know people who own condos and like that are going to be mad. There's some claims that, oh, this is just going to lead to everyone selling and crash the prices of condos. And that's not bad either. <laughs> yeah, if the argument is this thing to, to to make housing more affordable is going to lower the price of housing is the the argument against it. That, that's not a great argument um, <laughs> at all. Um, I, I don't think it's going to do that thing. I haven't like crunched the numbers, but my understanding is there isn't a like huge premium on the market for rental restricted strata units. I did see, I think when I was looking around a a while, you know, I don't even remember now, a year and a half ago, two years ago at uh, buying a condo or eventually a house now, there was an age restricted townhome complex in New West that we kept looking at and keeps kept seeing because their condos were like a hundred thousand dollars less than everywhere else. But it's because you couldn't have kids there. And it was wild because they were all like three, four bedroom townhomes. Yeah. So like that, that they're like no kids. You're like, what the? Yeah. Like I could see that being a case where you're, it goes for less just because the uh, universe of potential buyers is so much smaller. So the demand for those is less than otherwise, but you know, it's, if there is a detectable amount in what the the difference between a rental restriction strata and a non-rental restriction strata is, we're talking like a couple grand probably, maybe like mats, 10 grand, like not a huge amount. Like in the, in the grand scheme of things, it's not, there's no sign that this is something that like drastically changes the value of strata properties when it comes to just do they allow rental restrictions. So there you have it. We'll get hopefully a few you know more rentals on the market through this not a lot but yeah what, what i not nothing what i actually find interesting in this is what isn't included in here um because yeah. in eb's uh policy that he put out during the leadership race the other big thing in there was going to be uh basically provincial wide zoning changes to allow up to three units uh on a lot in uh cities in bc uh as well as legalizing secondary suites province-wide and those are just nowhere to be seen here uh which is unfortunate like on one hand those changes were not what they should have or those proposed changes were not as far as they should have been the three units on a lot that just brings you up to where vancouver is already uh so like they really should have done like minimum like six plats four-story apartment as you're like base zoning in major cities something like that but um even that even the smaller less ambitious changes that eb was proposing at the time still would have been quite good to see and just aren't anywhere here he says he's still interested in doing everything that was in that uh that policy document but like i don't know like this probably would have been the time to drop them with the uh, other stuff as part of the uh, 
housing supply at. I could see having only a week of sittings and even with the extra chamber going that they didn't want to push too much through right now. Uh, so maybe it will come in the spring. Uh, secondary suites are generally legal in all of Metro Van and Metro Victoria as far as I know. So not a huge change that would do. And like the city of Vancouver does have duplex zoning already and laneway suites. So you can effectively put three units on most lots in Vancouver. So like there are still places those changes will help. And there's a lot more to be done on housing. Uh, maybe, maybe a new minister of housing, a full minister can solve it all, Scott. Yes, this was the other housing announcement uh, this week. That actually came out like a day or two after the main two bills. But uh, yeah, as part of uh, EV's cabinet shuffle, that's going to be announced on December 7th. They're creating a new minister of housing, which is and ministry to go with it, which is good. Uh, before, this was basically like tacked on to the attorney general's portfolio. Uh, so like when EB was, was attorney general, he was also minister of housing, which you know doesn't seem ideal. The it's maybe better than how the BC liberals had it tacked on to like the minister of gas and oil. Yeah. I mean, if anything, it probably makes the most, if you're done tattooed on anywhere, probably municipal affairs would be the obvious yes. place to stick it. But yeah, it's weird that it was kind of like a tacked on thing and, um, also, like, giving it to the Attorney General is a weird one. The Attorney General is not kind of one of these, like, portfolios that just kind of exist. It's not no Minister of Sports and Recreation or something. It's a serious, like, senior cabinet position. And, you know, as talented as uh, David Eby probably is at time management, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. And no doubt the an Attorney General is going to be very busy all the time Attorney Generaling and... Attorneying general. I think that's only for the plurals when you're tapped. I know, I'm joking. I, I think if you verb but, the noun, it... Anyway. <laughs> um, hope, hopefully, though, this won't be as much of a joke as the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions kind of has become, where the big announcement in 2017 was, we're making a Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions to solve the crisis, which, <laughs> as as you'll note, is still ongoing quite badly. And... That ministry has been the subject since then. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, COVID, but yeah, uh, that ministry, you know, has been the feature of a few major pieces. Just talking about how it doesn't seem to do anything. It seems to be a lot of people who work in comms, which can be, you know, an important job. Useful, but, but like it has a yeah, less than a hundred staff for the entire ministry. Like all the frontline delivery uh, of mental health and addiction services are with the Ministry of Health, which was what they were before the Ministry of Mental Health and Addictions was formed. And it's just like not clear it really does anything fundamentally different than what was going on before, except now there's except the additional comms work and like and PR work of having a dedicated minister for it. So there'll be lots for the Minister of Housing to do just you know, manage the ongoing affordability crisis to get more houses built. To I don't know, use these new powers to punish cities that aren't meeting their reports and their housing need targets. Uh, the other thing they might have to do is solve whatever's happening at BC Housing, if anything. This has been the big 
BC Liberal attack or United Liberals attack this week is to focus on a leaked 2018 report showing financial problems with the uh, housing builder Atira or operator and whistleblower leaks from BC Housing to the BC Liberals alleging mismanagement in a number of different ways. Um, you know, I haven't had time to go through all of the substantive critiques here, but yeah, so some of this had, there's a lot of accusations. Yeah, some of this had been reported out before. Um, I think it was maybe the Taiyi had gotten their hands on uh, some of this stuff a while back. Uh, but yeah, basically, it looks like there were not good controls, processes, or anything around how BC Housing was handling its contracts and finances and making decisions on who gets, uh, you know, various non-market housing contracts, as well as uh, potential conflicts of interest by the the then CEO whose wife uh, was managing Atira. So yeah, like, look, I have not had a chance to review this. I don't think they've been publicized, the reports in full. Uh, but yeah, it sounds like there are some pretty reasonable concerns that um, BC Housing is not being run as well as it should. Yeah, Murray Rankin, who's the current Attorney General and Minister Responsible for Housing, uh, has been under fire in question period, particularly, I think, on Tuesday when David Eby wasn't in the House. He was doing some other meetings, and so the Liberals were having an extra field day with the fact that they couldn't it, even question the new Premier. Rankin is not great in question period either. And no, he was not good, is where I was going to get with that. So he was flubbing answer after answer and trying to just like muddle his way through like things are think problems have been identified and recommendations are being recommended uh dealt with <laughs> so kind of a mess there one thing i took note of and didn't see it get reported on too much was the bc liberals uh first mike bernier and then sheila bond uh took aim specifically at stephanie allen who's now the executive uh, who's now a vice president at bc housing they tried to bring up some claims and statements she'd made on twitter that you know they're on my twitter feed if you want to read specifically and they kept bringing back that she makes two hundred forty-five thousand dollars a year and you know does the government condemn her and rankin starts and says that they don't agree with the statements she made and eb when he was in the office just or in the legislature decided to take it a different way i mean most people in vancouver housing twitter will know stephanie allen formerly at built justice on twitter because she worked for nonprofit developers for for working at uh, BC Housing and has a pretty prominent and respected history of advocating for housing. So I just was annoyed that the Liberals decided to Yeah, she also did a lot her. of good work with the uh, Hogan Alley Society and whatnot. Um, yes. Also, past guest of the podcast uh, from 2020. Um, that said, I, I see why they went after it. Like some of their remarks, I think, are definitely probably not where the majority of british columbians are on some of this and i i can see why they uh tried to basically structure this as large i don't even think that's true i don't know what one of them was she says i'm not sure we get out of housing in a climate crisis without limiting capitalism she works at bc housing which is a non-profit builder which is a limit to capitalism yeah but there's also one that uh equated the uh home owner they said it equated 
home owning to slaves. The exact quote is the original real estate investment was in slave Africans. God bless everyone trying to find a home in these stolen lands as capitalism collapses under the weight of its greed and selfishness, which like upsets neoliberals, but isn't an like the you know, message that criminal. it conveys is that uh, real estate ownership is on a moral level with slavery, which that's a stretch. I mean, that's what it says. Like, that's the message that is conveyed in there. Um, so, like, I can see why people would take issue with the way that's phrased. But it's not a fireable offense to have an opinion that capitalism has problems. No, but it's, it's also, it, it is also a case where, like, this is politics and people are going to uh, take a close look at uh, the executives of what executives at major crown corporations say. So, like, the, it's I there is an element here, and both parties are definitely guilty of this when they're in opposition, where like drawing out because she's not the senior executive, right? She wasn't hired by the government. She was hired by the CEO who was appointed by the government. So like taking swipes and bringing in, oh, here's like mid-level staff or here's even upper mid-level staff and their comments, doesn't that you know disqualify the whole org? It's like it creates toxic workplaces. When you know that your social media may be trawled through to give ammunition to an opposition, you might either not take government jobs or public sector jobs, or you're going to shut the fuck up a lot more. And neither of those is particularly healthy to democracy. In other words, politicians stop going after civil servants across the board. Uh, I think executives are a little different than mid-level staff, but yeah, like it's there's a there's definitely a case where, like this is kind of how the game of politics is played and maybe that's not entirely healthy but yeah something all the parties do in uh opposition and speaking of something all the parties do is time allocation to get these two big housing bills through they're not even that big but i guess they're controversial enough to deserve some proper scrutiny in the legislature uh but nevertheless david eby a day after introducing them had his party introduce time allocation motions this will cut off debate after a finite amount of time and allow the bills to be hurried through before the end of today end of tomorrow I forget when the legislature rises but it's soon so that they can declare them law before christmas yeah like i said it's something all governments do and all parties in opposition will be outraged about even if they did the same thing when they were government. There, there was a good piece by Vaughn Palmer in the Vancouver Sun yesterday on this, you know, BC liberals decry guillotine that they've used while in government, especially like Mike DeYoung was particularly uh, fiery about this in exchanges with acting Deputy Speaker Spencer Chandra Herbert who was trying to actually cut him off, saying he was being repetitive, he was being off topic by talking about closure instead of the actual bill. And that erupted into an exchange that led to Mike DeYoung being dragged from the House, which is always a notable thing when a very senior or longstanding MLA gets kicked out of the legislature. They all apologized and said they kind of let it go a little too hot when he came back in and Mike got his eight minutes of yelling about the government before his speech time ran out. Um, Palmer does note that like the NDP is a little more egregious here, introducing a bill and then invoking time allocation the next day. Although back in 2008, Mike DeYoung himself uh, put through a, six bills in half an hour. So a pox on all their houses, I guess, 
if you're <laughs> I don't know. It's standard legislature stuff. Yeah, it's it's standard legislature shenanigans, with the exception of being dragged out of the house. That's probably the newest wrinkle on it. And yeah, I did double check. The house is rising this afternoon, so there's probably a few more hours left. By the time you're listening to this, these bills will probably get royal assent. So Yeah, so like the ledge website still lists uh bill 42 and 43 the uh housing supply act and the built building strata statutes amendment act as in second reading yeah it wouldn't surprise me if by the time you're listening to this those have gone through third reading and are at or near royal assent yeah typically as soon as they're done committee reading they grant it third reading immediately so i mean they'll do votes on them because the liberals are going to try and drag everything out but when you have a two-thirds majority in the House, you just pass what you want. And that's, that's democracy. Well, let's jump to quick takes. And while we're talking about democracy, the Green Party had a vote of Canada. Oh, yeah, that was a thing that was happening. For months, it was the uh, Great Canadian Leadership Contest or some kind of game. It was almost a game show. Uh, then it was almost cancelled entirely, and then they decided to just do it in a single round of voting rather than have a runoff. Uh, and the old leader is the new leader again, as Elizabeth May is elected as the leader of the Green Party of Canada. Yeah, so this is uh, to find the new leader after uh, Annamie Paul stepped down, um, and that was a whole thing in and of itself. But yeah, Elizabeth May is back. The, uh, who could have seen that one coming? The, it, it was a notable way that it happened. So Elizabeth May ran with Jonathan Pednolt as a co, with the idea that who, whichever of them wins would appoint the other to be co-leader. Uh, the other main ticket on the ballot was Anna Keenan and Chad Walcott, I believe. Anna Keenan and Chad Walcott. And they would be co-leaders. So in the end, it came down to a race between May and Keenan. In the first round, May got about 47% of the vote, 3,700 votes to Anna's 2,000. All Everyone else got under 800. And so then it was just like, Elizabeth May picks up 20 to 50 votes. Keenan picks up the rest until finally Pednall drops off and Elizabeth May managed to pick up. 600 of his thousand votes in that last round which is amazing that not all of his voters supported the person who said they'd appoint him as co-leader uh and then she won in the end with about 60 percent of the vote uh it's very notable that only eight thousand people voted in this leadership race i think the greens in when anime paul was elected had about thirty-four thousand ish voters uh, we saw the membership numbers for the BCNDP kind of, uh, or at least be talked about, alleged during the almost race they had. The BC Liberals in their last race had 45,000 members, I believe. So just just an abysmal showing by the Green Party, just embarrassing all around. Yeah, and like the co-leader thing's also weird. Um Particularly, like co-leader with yeah, Elizabeth Yeah, especially May. that. Like, no, nobody's co- yeah, nobody's going to be tr- a true co-leader with Elizabeth. Like one of the big things that was tearing the Green Party apart 
back when Anime Paul was uh, leader was that like basically Elizabeth May's people were still running all of the parts of the party with the exception of the leader's office and there was conflict and drama there. So like if Elizabeth May isn't able to step back when she is not leader, like what do you think the actual ability is going to be to like share power as co-leader yeah, with someone? The co-leader thing is kind of unique in Canada. I think the only party that has that model. Yeah, Doesn't Quebec, Quebec Solidarity, Solidarity has something that, weird with uh, but they're the only ones. Uh, Who also not exactly an electoral judge or not. picked up a bit more, not in the last election, the one before that, where I think they supplanted the uh, Parti Québécois for a change. Um, but David Moscrop, I did see him do a column, I don't have it in front of me, a, a few months ago on co-leadership models, and they do exist in a number of countries around the world. And they're interesting. I don't think he was convinced for or against him, and I don't think I am. There's possible benefits and there's possible weaknesses. Having, but as you say, like having someone with such a profile as Elizabeth May on there where there's so much baggage there, it, it boggles the mind to struggle it, to imagine it working well. Yeah. And particularly like the, yeah, because uh, Jonathan Pednall does not have a seat in the House of Commons. So, like, there's already going to be a, a big gap on that. And, at, like, politics in Canada is very leader-dominated uh, already. And it's just the case where, like, I have a lot of trouble seeing how you, like, effectively do the, like, day-to-day -day work of politics while having to, like, do this like co-leadership structure where decision making is going to be a lot more difficult to do in a like timely and decisive manner anyway so like the green party drama is probably not ended is i guess my takeaway from this um but like also like elizabeth may returning it's a bit of kind of like a with a like sorry and also elizabeth may returning with you know less than five thousand votes to become leader is a bit of a sad trombone noise as well for the green party on the sixth ballot. Yeah. So, that party still exists on paper. Uh, the other big federal party in the news this week, aside from the Emergencies Act hearing, which we'll hopefully get to talking about next week after all the hearings are wrapped up, is Pierre Polyev has a video out on Twitter and it follows some remarks he was giving at a press conference uh, a couple weeks ago on drug use and the overdose crisis and what he would do differently. It's about a five or six minute video, talks about his concerns and compassion and tries to lean in from that angle, but then pivots and talks about how the overdose crisis is due to, quote, woke liberal and NDP governments uh, and how they're basically just giving out dr toxic drugs to people and that's what's killing people, which is a damn lie. <laughs> like, you can say you disagree with the approach of safe supply, but the, it's not what's killing people. It's the fact the drugs are toxic now because they're all artificially generated and contain dangerous amounts of fentanyl. So your first time using might be your last. Uh, he's got some other policy announcements in the video. He wants to dump resources into border patrols to stop the drug trade because the war on, war on drugs has worked so well so far. He will strengthen up laws for repeat offenders and organized crime, the people, not not the innocent people, the criminals, they should be cracked down upon. So that's, again, war on drugs. 
and to stop funding the dangerous drugs and safe supply and to put money into recovery and detox. He cites Alberta's recent arguable success, which Paul Wells uh, debunks in a piece that he unpaywalled that goes through that actually Alberta is using a lot of harm reduction and safe supply. They're just not talking about it and are instead talking about their detox programs. Uh, so just he's getting a lot of flack for it. But one thing I thought I found really interesting is a few people picking up on Polyev's announcement as though it's a shift from where he ran as leader. And I, I feel like. If that's what you think, you weren't paying attention to who Pierre Polyev was at any point. Yeah, this doesn't strike me as a particularly big shift. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a few interesting things in here. Um, like, uh, I'll first off, like the not, like some of the stuff on the war, I think maybe is a little ungenerous. Like a lot of the, you know, the four pillars approach that Vancouver pioneered a couple decades ago. You know, enforcement was one of the pillars of that. And like a lot of models for move into like a decriminalization or even legalization model still have a role for like police to tackle drug smuggling and kind of the organized crimes elements. So it's not that alone isn't a giant red flag on it. Uh, I mean, some of the, the stats are questionable in the piece to say the least. Um, the other thing I think is interesting is kind of the overall framing uh of the uh, the video was entitled i think everything is broken which is a a line he started using quite a bit recently and as a top level frame i think is actually going to work fairly well uh for polyev because there i think is a fairly big public perception out there that like things aren't working too well whether it's you know can you get a passport or find children's tylenol or even our um, anti-addiction um, approaches in in Canada, where things fall down a bit on the solution side. But uh, I think the overall frame is going to be something that uh, he's going to be able to employ quite successfully going forward. I mean, I say it's a war on drugs approach because he's abandoning the harm reduction elements of Four Pillars in favor of just like going hard on the enforcement and the uh, treatment options. So it's kind of, you know, taking us back 20 years in terms of drug policy. And maybe you can make the argument there that there weren't as many people dying every day in BC 20 years ago from drugs as there are today. But you can only do that when you don't know anything about the issue and why people are dying. Um, it's not to say it's an easy solution out there, but I don't know. Paul Paul Wells' piece is great, and it was nice to see him um, go deep into the data and where these numbers that Polly ever using are wrong. Like he's not wrong that there has been a massive increase while Trudeau has been prime minister, but there is a the comparator he used. Yeah, so bad. But yeah, people are frustrated, and maybe it'll work, and that'll just make me sad. It's interesting to see Polyab lean into this. And that has been Playcoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playcoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playcoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playcoast is a production of Legend Boot Media. 
and editing services are provided by CHLY 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.